0: come before you this morning acknowledging and confessing that we are inadequate in of ourselves to fully grasp the riches of this passage. And so Lord, we confess that we are fully dependent upon your spirit to give us spiritual wisdom and insight so that we can understand what you are telling us, speaking to us through this passage That was written long ago and yet still has relevant application today. And so, Lord, would you give us listening ears, but more importantly, an open heart as we study your word together this morning. May you be glorified in our hearts and in our thinking and especially in the way we apply this word into our lives and what you're doing in it. So for your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. My wife and I have a free subscription to Netflix through our T-Mobile subscription, or T-Mobile whatever that calls, it. contract, right? Uh, I don't know how we got it. My brother set it up with a family account, but anyway, we have free Netflix. Now, my wife and I have been together for about eight years now, and we have similarities, we have differences, and we always manage to work through our differences to figure out you know, how to go about our days and, and our lives, but for some reason, when it comes to Choosing what to watch on Netflix. We can never find agreement. Uh, for those of you guys who are married and have a Netflix account, you probably know what I'm talking about, right? When you sit down at the end of the day, you know, you put the kids to bed, it's like 8.30 by then nine o'clock after you clean up and you just wanna have time to relax and you try to decide together on what to watch. And for, for my wife and I, for some reason, if our lives depend on it, we can never decide on what to watch. Uh, I mean, just last time we, we turned it on, um, she was like watching, uh, what's it called? Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. Have you guys heard of that? It's kind of like this thing now where this, this Japanese lady is like really good at tidying up people's houses. She was watching that for like five, 10 minutes and, and I was like, seriously, are we really going to watch the rest of this episode? Um, I wanted to watch something else like Avengers, right? Infinity War. I think that's on Netflix now. But we can never, ever decide. The only thing we can decide on is after 30 minutes of indecisiveness is that it's time to go to bed, it's late now. <laughs> and usually that's how it ends up, or we just you know turn on an episode of Friends, because who doesn't like Friends, right? So I guess that we can agree on. But inevitably, at, at the end of you know, 30 minutes of browsing through Netflix, I always go back to one suggestion, because I think, I've seen this show before, and I think she would actually like it. So every time we don't decide on something, I always suggest, hey, can we just watch, hold on a second, let me put this on the right setting. Can we just watch Stranger Things? How many of you guys have seen this this show before? Stranger Things is a great show. I mean, these kids and the way they they tell the story, and um, they're great actors and actresses, and you totally get sucked into the story, and surprisingly, even though there are many in the cast, you feel really personally involved in each character. But the thing is, it's a little creepy. I mean, just the title, Stranger Things, gives you some, some idea of it. But my, my wife always, without hesitation, says no. Because in her mind, this is kind of like like horror, you know? And I assure her, I said, it's not horror. I don't, I don't like watching horror. It's not horror. It's just, I admit to her, though, it is a little creepy some parts. But, but she would just say no. I, I, she would not even consider it. Won't even watch the first five minutes or whatever to see if she'll like it. Now, I partly blame Hollywood and TV because oftentimes in you know horror and shows like that, it's always filled with um, horrifying and grotesque images, and so my wife just really like you know just disgusted that kind of stuff, and she won't even give this show a chance. <laughs> but um, and so, so I partly blame Hollywood and TV for that, because it gives us a natural impression sometimes that that when it comes to um, demonic the demonic realm or whatever, right? That we can either we have to react in two different ways. Either we react with a lot of fear, irrational fear, or the other extreme is that what Hollywood does is it makes us laugh about it, right? It's just comical, trivial, laughable. So you have a show that I grew up watching as Ghostbusters, and then the Ghostbusters movie in the 80s. I know they had a recent remake with just a female cast. I didn't see that one. But, but Ghostbusters is this very lighthearted kind of... Story, film, dealing with ghosts, right? But yeah, the other extreme, of course, where it's just like totally horror and bloody and gruesome. No one really, I mean, some people enjoy that stuff. But that's kind of the extreme that we we have in in our media. And and we think like that when we come to a story like this in Mark where you have a demon-possessed man. And so uh, what that has done to us in our society over time is that it's kind of distanced us from the reality of what the demonic realm looks like. This distances us from the reality when we just are either really scared about it or we just laugh at it, right? But I think the reality for us is neither comical or utterly scary, at least for us in Christ. And so as we take a look at this story that Mark records about a demon-possessed man, which I'll refer to as the demoniac, that's kind of a name for a demon-possessed person, a demoniac. Traditionally, this, this text is called, you know, the, the healing of the demoniac or whatever. When we look at this passage together, I hope we will get a, a sobering and realistic picture of what demons are capable of and what their intentions are when they're dealing with a person made in the image of God. But the second, my second hope is that we would see from this story that um, it's a story ultimately of God's salvation. That it's a giant metaphor of God's salvation as it plays out in our story, in your story, and and what Jesus has come to do with uh, his dying on the cross and and rising again, what he is accomplishing in our salvation. Okay, so two things. Let's get a realistic picture of what demon possession looks like and what the demons are after in terms of possessing people made in the image of God, but also see it as a metaphor. And I, I really think Mark includes this story because it is a metaphor for what Jesus' salvation looks like. So if you have your, your outlines and in your bulletin and you want to take notes, I encourage you to do that uh, and take out your, your Bibles as well. The setting is Gentile territory. Okay, We, we learn later in, in towards the end of the passage that we're in the Decapolis. The Decapolis literally means ten cities decapolis okay, decapolis the ten cities and these were the ten cities on the eastern frontier of the Roman empire towards the east of the sea of galilee and so are if you know what i mean when i say gentile i mean non jews okay for the jews the gentiles were dirty they were unclean right because the jews had certain rituals to do in order to be ceremonially unclean these were these were things that god told them to do in order to to be able to participate in temple worship and sacrifice and so the gentiles they didn't have the law, they were unclean. You gotta stay away from them because if you come in in interaction with them and what they eat, you might become ceremonially unclean and you have to do all this stuff to get clean again, okay? So, so the Gentiles were like kinda yuck, okay? So we're in kinda yucky territory. 10 cities, Gentile territory. Also, we learned that there are people here that are raising pigs. And if you know anything about law, they weren't allowed to eat pigs, okay? So raising pigs was like extra yuck, right? So Uh, If you're going to have a horror film, since we're on that topic, if you're a Jewish person, this would be like the setting of a horror film for you. Okay, Gentile territory, pig raising, and all of a sudden you're in a graveyard. We're in the graveyard right now, right? And there's this guy who's demon-possessed. Okay, so triple yuck. You have a demon-possessed guy in the graveyard. Oh, by the way, graveyards were also places of contamination, right? Because in the law, if you touch the dead body, you're unclean now. And you have to go through all this stuff to get clean again. So dead bodies, pigs, Gentiles, this is very intentional. Mark is mentioning these details because he's describing the picture Is Jesus is in a place right now that's very, very unclean and something that Jews do not want to associate with, okay? Straight out of a horror movie. And yet here we are and this man who rushes out to greet Jesus is as unclean as you could get. He's in Gentile territory, and he's demon-possessed. He's probably naked and with scrapes and bruises. and It's almost like he's a zombie. Okay? He's like, the way he's described is kind of scary. And, but what is Jesus doing here in this Gentile territory? We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. But we do know that, like I said earlier, this is full of symbolism here. This is a metaphor as well for us. And so as we look at this, we want to see what this story of redemption looks like uh, in the big picture, Okay? And so, the story moves or progresses in three acts. I'm going to call it three acts. In your outline, you can see act one, act two, act three. Okay? So, act one, I think we should call that the hopeless situation, if you're taking notes. The hopeless situation. Okay? Immediately, when Jesus steps out of the boat, this man who's demon-possessed runs to Jesus. And we have many details here. It's probably details that Mark gathered from the townspeople that that knew this guy, right? He had a reputation of being that weird guy in the caves that was just screaming and yelling and they tried to like tie him down, but they couldn't. Okay, so Mark's getting all these details and he gives us these details. So he says that um, he lived among the tombs, okay? Now, often in Palestine, people were buried in natural caves that were cut out, you know, limestone, rock that was cut out. So don't think of like gravestones necessarily, but cut out caves or cut out, yeah, rocks that have been cut out that have a place of shelter where you can put bodies and things like that. So this guy who's been isolated, marginalized, pushed out to the fringes of society because of his condition, he he finds solace in these caves. He lives there, protects himself from the elements in these caves. Um, And then Mark says no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. So apparently he was out of control. He's violent perhaps. I mean, that's why they're trying to bind him down. He's violent, out of control. Um, But it says that even a chain couldn't hold him down. So he has superhuman strength, right? And the kind of weird thing here is he has superhuman strength, but he's like subhuman in his dignity, right? Superhuman strength, but subhuman or unhuman in dignity. And the third third description Mark gives us is that he daily cried out. He daily cried out. Let's see in verse five there cried out, and he cut himself with stones. And so what does the crying out symbolize? Like he's, it shows that he, is, he feels hopeless, maybe, desperate for someone to hear him. So he's crying out day and night, someone to save him, maybe even someone to notice him or treat him like a human. <clears throat> uh, maybe to take compassion on him for whatever remaining humanity he has left. He's crying out. And yet daily no one answers him. They continue to treat him like a monster. And so, so maybe over time, he begins to believe he is a monster, so he's cutting himself, right? He wants to hurt himself. If people want to destroy me, then why don't I just destroy myself, right? That's that's the idea here. That's the picture we get. Someone who is very hopeless and desperate and has a lot of self-hatred. Now, are the demons doing this or is he doing this? It's it's not clear, but it's, it could be both and, right? I mean, to some degree, uh, maybe the demons are getting him to the point where he feels like he should cut himself and, and he hates himself. On the, other, on the other hand, maybe the demons have so hijacked his personhood that they are controlling him. And it's like maybe he wants to hurt himself and he does it at the same time. Okay, so, so that picture is not clear, but, but apparently his, his personhood is really distorted to the point where he can't control himself very well. So is this a metaphor? <clears throat> I really think it is. Obviously, it literally happened, but it can also be represented as the story of our salvation. That this is what we were. This is what we were in our sinful and hopeless state before Jesus enters the picture. This is what we looked like. Perhaps the reason why Mark tells this story of Jesus wandering into a foreign Gentile territory is because it shows that we were lost and in a foreign place. We were lost and in a foreign place. And so that's the first takeaway of of understanding our fallen sinful condition before Jesus came into our lives. That first takeaway is that we were lost and alienated from Christ. We were lost and alienated from Christ. Now secondly, in our spiritual state, apart from Jesus, we were dead. Now this guy is not dead, but in many, if you think of it practically, he's pretty much dead. I mean, how is he gonna live again if Jesus didn't come into the picture? So I think this is a picture of our spiritual state. Apart from Jesus, we were pretty much dead. I mean, it is a graveyard, after all. He's living among the dead. You know, in in a recent survey of of, of American evangelicals, um, they found that when it comes to this statement, 53% 53% of American evangelical Christians agree. The statement is, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 53% of American evangelical Christians agreed with that. But when I look at this picture here in Mark, I don't see that, that it shows us good by nature and just a little bit of sin. What we see here is someone who is totally dead. I mean, he can pass as a, a, a walking zombie. He's dead, but he's just walking around. He's possessed, destroying himself, hopeless. And I think that is the condition that we were all in before Jesus entered the picture. In our spiritual deadness and in our sin, the image of God is so marred beyond recognition, just as this guy was probably marred beyond recognition. His family and friends, whatever he had left, probably didn't recognize him. And it was hard to see his humanity. He was probably worse than an animal, or treated worse than an animal. And that was us before Jesus came into our lives, spiritually speaking. Okay? I mean, on the outside, we could look nice, but on the, on the inside, our hearts were far from Jesus. It was practically dead. I mean, sin has a way of doing this to us, doesn't it? Where it kind of just makes us unhuman it makes us unrecognizable when i when i look at that when i look back at, on my life when i was in high school man i do not recognize him i don't recognize him <clears throat> i've had i've had um, yahoo mail since like 2003 or something so so every once in a while i don't use yahoo mail i use gmail now but i still have that account open so sometimes i just curiously look at all these old emails back in like the early 2000s when i was in high school and uh, I don't recognize that person. It's so weird, the things I said and did. I don't recognize that person. And, and sin has that, sin does that, you know? It makes us unhuman. And, and over time, Jesus transforms us by his spirit, right? By the refining work of his word and the, the Holy Spirit, we become different people. So five years from now, I'm, hopefully when I look back at myself, I do look different. <laughs> But this man, before before Jesus enters the picture, he is unrecognizable and hopeless. And thirdly, in our spiritual deadness, we were, uh, I'll just reemphasize, we were utterly hopeless. Consider this. If Jesus hadn't come that day, if Jesus hadn't come that day to to heal this person, you think randomly one day he would just snap out of it and no longer be demon-possessed? You think one day maybe people would come to him and say, Hey, we welcome you back into our society, into our homes. If Jesus hadn't come that day, would would maybe the demons just one day say, Ah, let's just let him go. No, it's unthinkable for for any of those things to just change suddenly apart from Jesus. The point here is that Jesus was his only hope. And so in our spiritual condition, I think we need to recognize that we don't just get better over time. We're not like wine. We're like rotting, something else that's rotting, okay? Uh, We don't get better over time. Apart from Jesus, that is. And so in our spiritual state, I think that's the picture here. We look like this demoniac. I hear a lot of Christians say, uh, God gives you a second chance. Now, I understand what they're getting at. But I think to be more accurate, to be more biblical, I think I would say God doesn't take chances with us. Uh, in fact, it would require a million chances, and we we still wouldn't be good enough, okay? So what does God do? He intervenes instead. He doesn't just give you more chances to get your act together. He intervenes in his grace. And so when God intervenes, our salvation doesn't depend on our second chance. It depends on the certainty of his saving powers, his saving work. And so I'm going to just go out on a limb here, and I'm going to guess that the demoniac wasn't looking for a second chance. He was looking for salvation. He was looking, crying out for someone to come and rescue him, someone to even notice him. And Jesus gives him nothing less than his salvation. Now, what does that look like? How does Jesus accomplish this salvation? We've got to move on to Act 2. Act 2 is titled, Salvation. Verse 6 through 13. When when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Now this is interesting because it's like, is the man doing this? Or are, the, is the demons, are the demons controlling him to do this? But in verse 7, he says, he, crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? So, so it's kind of clear here that the demons are speaking. What have you to do with me? Actually, it's singular first, and we'll find out. It's going to be multiple, but What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? We've seen this before in Mark, right? Where when the demon encounters Jesus, they're like, Oh, what are you doing here? What business do you have with us? And they're kind of scared. Uh, And then he says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Interesting. The tormentor now becomes the tormented. Or at least he's afraid of being tormented. So the tables have turned. Do not torment me. And then Jesus says, or Jesus was saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Oh, backing up. He says, I adjure you by God. That's kind of funny because he's, he's kind of like swearing by God's name, but he's speaking to God. So it's kind of weird that a demon would swear by God to try to use that to compel Jesus not to, to torment him. Anyway, he says, what is your name? And the demon says, my name is Legion, for we are Many. Now, this is a little unclear about why he's saying his name is legion. Is he telling the truth or what does that that mean? But a legion in the Roman army was an army of 6,000 men. Okay, so were there 6,000 demons in him? I don't know. But there was probably a lot. I mean, there was enough to get 2,000 pigs later, as we'll see, to run down a cliff. Okay, so there are a lot of demons in this person. Um, And then he begged them earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, that's a stranger crest. They're negotiating with Jesus. right? Okay, don't torment me, but you know what you can do? Send me... Well, they're negotiating in verse 13. Send me to the pigs instead. They don't want it to be sent out of the country. What does that mean? Why do they not want to be sent out of the country? Maybe, maybe they're saying, okay, if you take us... If you drive us out of this guy, at least let us stay in the area. Maybe they have some uh, influence, oppressive influence in the area that they, they just... They still want to stay there. Now, in Luke's retelling of this same account, Luke says that the demons also requested that Jesus doesn't send them into the abyss. So maybe by sending them out of the country, they're afraid that Jesus is going to send them to the abyss. Now, what is the abyss? The abyss is that future place of torment, okay, where they will be judged along with Satan. So they they know the future. They know where they're headed, they're just basically telling Jesus, delay that, please. I don't want to go there yet. Basically, this is hell. Okay? hell was, Hell is a place in the future for God to judge Satan and uh, the demons and all those who reject Jesus. And so they're saying, hey, don't send us there yet. Just send us to the pigs instead. And that's why they fear him. Because he has the power to to send them to the abyss or not. Now, surprisingly, Jesus complies. He sends them into the herd of pigs. See in verse 13. He gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. What? What? If you're reading this for the first time, you're probably thinking, this, this is crazy. Why would Jesus do this? I mean, doesn't Jesus support PETA? Like, okay, that's just a joke. But, <laughs> I mean, is this animal cruelty? Like, Jesus is just letting these demons kill 2,000 pigs? Poor piggies, aren't they? Like, they're cute. And they're just running off the cliff. Okay, fine. Maybe, maybe the small ones are cute. When they get bigger... Uh, they're not so cute, but they're running down the cliff, and they all die. And so, I mean, talk about a waste of animal life, but also a waste of the finances of the herds. I mean, the, the the owners of that herd, right? They that's devastating financially. I mean, you guys probably don't understand it, but but if you were you know living in that day, two thousand pigs, that's a lot of money. It's like you losing. I don't know, all your cars and computers and electronics and what else? Something that that you rely upon. Or your business. Let's say you have a business. And your business just gets wiped out. That's huge financial ruin. And so two things that this review is about what Jesus did. I think that um, what Jesus is showing is that when the pigs run down the cliff... It's really illustrating what would have happened to this man eventually. It would have been death. Like, this was the intention of the demons, is to destroy you. They're there to torment you, distort the image of God in you, strip you of that humanity, and to destroy you. By sending them out and letting them do as they please to the pigs, what he's illustrating to the man and to so everyone who witnessed it, what the demons were capable of and what they were intending to do. They were intending to, in a sense, throw this man off the cliff too. So that's number one. I think that's why Jesus did this. It's not just, it's not, it's not just wasteful you know, resources. It's not wasting resources. It's illustrating a point. And, and the other thing is, uh, by Jesus doing this, he's showing the man his value. He's showing the man that he is valuable. That even, even, if it makes, even if it brings financial ruin to these people, even if it means 2,000 pigs, so what? You're more important than that. And you know what? There's nowhere in this narrative, in Jesus or in Mark's telling of it, that we see that, there's, that they think this is wrong or this is not worth it. It was totally worth it. Okay? The material losses pale in comparison to the salvation and the deliverance of this man who was being tormented. It's not even, it's, not, it's a no-brainer. So if we want to continue with this metaphor, then what we see here is a picture of redemption. Literally, redemption, this, this idea of buying back. This idea that, that you purchase something, or in this case, someone with a cost, with a price. And this price was collateral damage of the pigs. The pigs had to die, and the financial ruin of the herdsman had to, was the consequence of this man's life for him to be, to be bought back and free. Redemption wasn't free, and it was neither cheap in this case. And so our redemption will ultimately cost something more than. Pigs and someone's business, it will cost the life of the king himself. But the cost that God's willing to pay for our repossession, the cost that he's willing to pay for our repossession, that means the the life of Jesus Himself, that cost tells us something about the value he places on your life, doesn't it? The cost that God's willing to pay for your repossession tells you something about the value that he places on your life, on us, doesn't it? You notice at the beginning of the story, the man was cutting himself. He had self-hatred because he probably saw zero worth, zero worth in himself. He wanted to die. Well, here we see that turned upside down. Jesus says, no, you are worth it. You have value. You know The demons hate you but and cause you to have self-hatred, but I want you to see your self-worth. You're worth this much that I'm willing to just get a whole town mad at me, wanting to drive me out, even let pigs die and these guys' business go out of business, but you know, you're know you worth it. So Jesus is turning that upside down. He's restoring that, the value and the human dignity that this man has. And so that's what Jesus does with us. When he saves us, he brings us into his kingdom. Just like the story of the prodigal son, right? The father puts the coat on his son Puts a ring on his finger, restores that value, that dignity in us. Okay, and then we move to um, Act 3. In Act 3, we see a contrast of responses. A contrast of responses. We either have disregard or discipleship. Disregard or discipleship. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there. Notice the words. Sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. So notice the contrast with what was before, right? Whereas before, he was thrashing about uncontrollably. They couldn't even bind him with chains. Here he's sitting. Uh, calmly, sitting calmly under control. It says he was clothed now, which implies that he was probably naked earlier, probably because he would tear his clothes and you know, have all these cuts. But now he's clothed. He has some semblance of humanity restored to him simply by having clothes on. And then, whereas before his mind was hijacked by demons, here it says he was in his right mind. Now the townspeople saw the complete transformation of this man and Mark says they were afraid. I mean, how would you react? If you saw this transformation, would you be like, yippee, and like try to greet the person and maybe ask Jesus some questions? Like, oh, how'd you do that? That was pretty crazy. I mean, we tried really hard and you just came here and boom, he's like different. But we don't get that kind of response. We get this response of fear. We get this response of fear. Now, why would they be afraid, though? Why? Why be afraid? I think this is fear that comes from not understanding. Sometimes you're afraid of what you don't understand. You fear what you don't understand, right? The unprecedented power that Jesus must have had in order to do this, it threatens their own sense of comfort and security. Okay? The kind of power that Jesus has to do this threatens their own sense of security and comfort. Sometimes it's better just to pretend that this kind of power doesn't exist, right? Sometimes just, it's just easier just to not believe that this power exists rather than to try to deal with the ramifications and the consequences, the implications of, of how it intersects with our lives, right? We're not used to dealing with this kind of power, and these people certainly weren't. And it was easier for them to just maybe ignore that it exists. So they were, like, really afraid, when I was a kid, my brother and I had a BB gun. You guys know what a BB gun is? It's an actual physical gun. It's not a gun that you buy in the app store for your digital character, okay, it's a real gun. But it shoots BBs, little metal pellets. And you like, a, you pump it a few times. The more you pump it, the faster the BB shoots out. So you, actually, you, can, you can actually get injured, okay? We had a BB gun. It looks something like this. Um, yeah, I know. Don't walk out on the street with that because then they'll think it's a real gun. Um, and we, we had fun with it. We were just kids, know, schoolers, maybe maybe early high school, I forgot. So we would be in our backyard and we would just shoot anything in sight. Like, our neighbor's oranges, you know. <laughs> or like, uh, yeah, I know. Imagine him biting into an orange one day and then just like breaking his teeth. We shot oranges. We shot like, you know, the roof's antenna. Like, not our roof, but their roof. like, <laughs> Antennas used to be like outdoor back then, not the indoor antenna, but the outdoor on the roof. So we shoot it, like you know, it's metal, so it would cling and clang when we shoot it. Uh, we would try to shoot airplanes, but they were too far away, obviously. But it's just, you know, we did random stuff like that. And then one day, when we got bored of that stuff, we were like, you know what? Let's shoot a bird. Let's, let's up the game a little bit here. And so, sure enough, one day a bird landed on our roof. So we pumped it up, you know, got ready. I think my brother my brother had the trigger. Okay, so I was watching. And he was like, he aimed, and I'll never forget the image etched on my mind as he pulled that trigger, you see like this cloud of feathers. Like, it's just like in the movies or in the the cartoons. Like, it literally, boom, feathers came out, you know, in all directions and the bird, the poor bird tumbled down the other side of the roof. We were in the backyard. He tumbled down the other side of the roof. So we ran to the house, opened the front door, went to the front yard to see what happened. And the bird had left. I'm sorry, this is a sad story. I, you know. uh, he left like a blood trail, okay, on my dad's car. He bounced off my dad's car, went on the ground. And he was still alive. And he was just breathing, laying on the ground, looking at us. As if like, you know, to say, what have you done, you know? And we felt, so, we were sick to our stomachs. We were sick to our stomachs as we looked at that bird, breathing his final breaths with a little bit of blood on the ground. And we were sick to our stomachs. And on that, from that day forward, we... We realize what kind of power we're dealing with in this little toy gun. Um, I'm not against hunting or anything, but I just, as kids, you know, you don't realize what you can do with a gun like this. And so, from that day on, we, we just we tucked the, the gun away. It was too powerful for us to handle. It didn't play with it very much at all after that. These townspeople also encountered. Great power, and they weren't prepared to deal with it. They encountered this great power, and the best thing in their minds was, let's just forget about it. Let's just just get out. Just leave, Jesus. Okay? We don't, you know, their amazement was more of a fear. And so they told Jesus to get lost. He must go. He must leave. This is too much for us. If he can control demons, if he can control demons and tell them what to do, and cause them to kill 2,000 pigs, what else can you do? It's just better that we get them out of the picture. So it was fear, it was ignorance, but it was also selfishness because of the financial loss. They don't want to lose any more stuff. And those things, that selfish thinking, consume their thinking rather than having compassion for the man. And, and that's what's crazy about this story is that this man who has been restored He has his dignity back. He has his right mind back. He can go back to his family. But they had zero compassion about that. And the only thing they can think about is themselves and just to get rid of Jesus. And there's so much irony here. The demons earlier, remember the demons begged Jesus to let them stay? And here it says they begged Jesus to leave. In other words, they are more comfortable with demonic forces going around possessing people Causing people to, you know, be violent and stuff. They're okay with that. Just chain them up in the graveyard. They're more comfortable with that than comfortable with someone who can actually undo that. They're more comfortable with demonic forces than they are with someone who can drive them out. Who can expel them. And the other ironic thing is, oh yeah, I already mentioned it, that they can cope with a demoniac who is just terrorizing the town but they can't cope with someone who is there for healing and for good they would rather have that Jesus far far away this can characterize our attitude an utter disregard for who Jesus revealed himself to be an utter disregard for who Jesus revealed himself to be many of us know who of this Jesus we know his power we know his authority but we rather live in our Little bubble of self authority, right? We'd rather be in control. We don't want someone else who has power to be in control. Let's get him far away. We'd rather be in our little bubble of self authority so that we can have it our own way. And, so, and all the while, we, we miss out. We're blind towards the fact that Jesus doesn't wield his authority like to abuse it, but he, he uses his authority for healing and for mercy but we're so caught up in our own selfish desires of self-authority that we fail to see the kind of authority Jesus has. I know a lot of people that they would, they would stay away from Jesus because, because they, they, can't, they can't be okay with this idea of someone else in charge, someone else that has a power over them. And so the question for all of us in this, in this third act is when, when confronted with Jesus, do we respond with disregard or discipleship? The townspeople chose to disregard Jesus, to reject him, to drive him away. But notice how the man responded. Look at verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, there's that word again, that he might be with him. He begged him that he might be with him. Now, this is the same language used earlier in Mark's gospel in chapter 3, when Jesus was calling his first 12 disciples He called his disciples, and in Mark's language, Jesus called them that they might be with him. Same words, be with him. So I think this is a signal here that Mark is indicating that this is a technical language for discipleship. This man is saying, I want to be your disciple. Just as the 12 were called to be with Jesus, this guy is begging to be with Jesus as well. He wants discipleship, he wants to be a follower. Disciple basically means learner, okay? If you're a disciple of Jesus, you are are a learner. You you sit under his tutelage. You sit under his teaching to be like him as a follower to your master, your teacher. He um, He was ready to leave his old life or whatever was left of it to take on a fresh life with Jesus as his teacher, But take a look at what Jesus does. Really strange. Jesus redefines or perhaps adds another layer to what discipleship looks like for this man. Look at verse 19. He did not permit him but said, so he didn't let him to come with him, but he said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he, the demoniac, or the, the guy who used to be a demoniac, he went away and began to proclaim. That word proclaim, by the way, is used of preaching the gospel many times in the New Testament. Proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. How many of you guys have seen Batman Begins? It's kind of old, I mean, for your age. Okay, Wow. Well, Batman Begins is the, is the prequel to Batman, right? Batman Begins this is a Christopher Nolan film where he, he, he does, he, what is that? he writes, he directs the story of Batman's beginnings, how he became Batman, okay? So it's the story behind the story. And, and at the end of the movie, if you watch the movie, the, the end of the movie, uh, Christopher Nolan waits until the end of the movie before he shows the title of the movie. So at the very end, before the credits show, it says, Batman Begins. And I remember watching it, I was like, wow, that's interesting. Usually movies show the title at the beginning, right? But there's a certain artistic touch to that where if you show the title at the end, it's kind of like you let the audience see the whole story unfold, and then the title being shown at the end now allows them to make sense of the title. Like, oh, that's why it's called Batman Begins, or that's why it's called The Dark Knight Rises, or whatever, okay? And so Christopher Nolan does that, and I I think a lot of people are doing that these days, where they show the title at the end of the movie rather than the beginning. When we get to verses 19 and 20, now you can understand the title of my sermon, I think. If you were confused about the title of the sermon, The First Apostle to the Gentiles, uh, now it should make sense. The word apostle here, the word apostle simply means messenger. I know you think of the apostle Paul, whatever, but guess what? The Apostle Paul was not the first messenger to the Gentiles. It was this demoniac. Apostle, not as a title, but just as a, as a name, a messenger. The first apostle, the first messenger to the Gentiles was this demon-possessed man who had been healed and brought back to life and who can't find he, he has so much joy, he can't help himself but to tell everyone in the ten cities, the ten Gentile cities, about who this Jesus is and what he had done for him. It's a title that highlights the transformation. This man, by God's grace, transformed from someone without hope, someone feared, someone who was isolated, marginalized. He transformed it to someone who would become the first apostle, the first messenger to the Gentile world. He became a herald, someone who proclaims, the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. I like what John Bloom says about this. He says this, quote, the words return to your home must have made this man's heart sink. Home for him was not a warm place of sentimental memories. Home was a place of memories so dark and pain filled that he likely just wanted to escape them and never go back. But Jesus told him to go back. It was a hard call to return to the place where he had known demons, chains, tombs, self-mutilation, public humiliation, abuse, loneliness, and suicidal torment. But it was there that the grace of God in his life would shine the brightest. It was there that the grace of God would shine the brightest. My hope and prayer for us this morning is that we see ourselves in this story. This is not a story about just the demoniac. It's a story about us. <clears throat> that we see ourselves in this story, not as those who disregard the saving power that is revealed in Jesus, but as those who recognize that it is only by this power that we could be transformed, that our mess could be turned around. But it's also my hope and prayer that we would then respond in joyful obedience to take the light of the gospel to the darkest places of our own stories, just as this former demoniac did. And so so what are the unique places in your life where God is specifically sending you because you were refined by the the fire of tribulation and adversity that precisely makes you suitable for that place? Where is God sending you to that place? You understand what I'm saying? Where is, is God sending you where you are uniquely refined for that particular place because of the, the pain and the dark parts of the story that you have. I know a lot of people that go through a lot of hurt in their lives, tragedies, but on the other side of that, they're so grateful because they get to use that to enter into those spaces where no one else could, you know? And so you can identify. I mean, you can imagine how many people this guy can identify with. People that also struggle with self-hatred <clears throat> and being excluded from society and feeling down and out. The man in our story was the first messenger to the Gentiles. Will we seek to be the first messengers in our own unique circles of friends and families? The mission field is not some faraway place overseas. It, it can be, but for some of us, and for mo- for most of us, I would say the mission field is here. It's home. That's where he was sent, home. To the places that we know and the people that we are familiar with. That's our mission field. So will you pray with me that God would make us bold and courageous and joy-filled as we go and proclaim what the Lord has done for us and how he has had mercy on us all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not keep us so comfortable that we forget how needy we are. That you take us into places that are challenging, that are dark. Even as we look at this story, and we can, it's hard to imagine what he went through. And yet, Lord, you don't, in your grace, you don't spare us from those things, but you allow us to enter into those places so that in the darkness there is light. We can encounter your light and then be a light to the rest of the world, to all the nations. Help us to remember that it starts now. It starts in our home, in our places of work and school. And so, Lord, give us boldness and courage and joy to be messengers of the gospel in the places that you have put us. For your glory, for your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor.